Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of this day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather and to worship you and to think back to what the world was like 2,000 years ago and, and recall that celebration that took place. And God, I just pray you would open our hearts and our minds that uh, we would be able to understand it uh, in, in some way that is accurate to what really occurred and, and to understand how we can apply that to our lives. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for how much you love us. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So one year ago, we gathered to do the very same thing. We gathered for Palm Sunday. But if you remember, it was just a couple weeks before that we had been told nobody gets to gather anymore. And so we went, like so many churches, figuring out how in the world do we do this? How do we keep a sense of community and family and worship alive? And so you think Palm Sunday without being able to do the parade is kind of an odd thing? One of the guys walked in and said, I love this thing. It makes me think about when I was in Sunday school as a kid. Yeah, if if you grew up in the church, there's great memories that we have of, of Palm Sunday. Last year, there was eight of us in this room. Nobody could be here. And so it was the tech people and the, and the worship team, and, and that was all. You talk about a strange Palm Sunday, and, and then we wondered, how in the world do we celebrate Resurrection Sunday when there's nobody here? And, and what we talked about, what we realized is nothing in the world can separate us from God's love for us. Nothing does at all. So whether you're watching at home or you're on vacation or you're somewhere that isn't your normal place or whether you're here with us for the first time or the hundredth time, you need to know that nothing, nothing can separate us from God's great love for us. And today we begin what's called Holy Week. And Holy Week is where we see in living color in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God's great love for us. So it's called Palm Sunday. We're going to talk about that and what it means and uh, all four of the Gospels actually record the events of that first Palm Sunday. We're going we're gonna to choose to look at Luke in the 19th chapter if you've got your Bible. And so what we do is we join with churches all over the world that celebrate with palms this day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey and announced in no uncertain terms that he was the king of the Jews. And the Jewish people were excited about that because they'd been waiting for hundreds of years. They thought there was going to be a king that God was going to bring them that was going to restore them to the great days of King David, a powerful, mighty military king that was going to kick Rome out and send them back home and that they would be put back on their place of prominence. The Jewish people would have their place of prominence once again. And little did they know that Jesus, this young guy from the Galilee region in northern Israel, a homeless man, was the one who was going to ride into Jerusalem as the one that they'd been waiting for, their king and their savior. And this day set off a series of events that we continue to try to understand and we talk about today. It was the day that he showed up. That's the part that that caused so much confusion and and frustration and anger among the church leaders. See, that that first Palm Sunday, it was Jesus very much unlike what Jesus had been through most of his ministry. When you read the accounts in the New Testament, Jesus spoke to crowds, but he didn't really choose to stand in front of them. They just gathered. If people wanted to be around the miracle worker, this, this man from Galilee that did things that couldn't be explained... Jesus, given the choice, liked to go off and be in solitary places. He liked to be alone. He liked to be quiet and he liked to pray. But people followed him. 
And so crowds were something that he was used to. It just wasn't that he ever sought the spotlight. It was important on this day, though, that Jesus changed. It was important that he did things differently around people, that that people saw him, that people heard who he was, that people understood that he was the one they'd been waiting for. He was the king that God had promised. He was the Messiah that had been written about. And what caused so much trouble was the day that he chose to ride into Jerusalem. It was the beginning of Passover. and People were there from all over the area. They, they, uh, Jewish people from all over came to celebrate. It was a party in Jerusalem. The, the number of people in town grew incredibly. But back then it wasn't Palm Sunday. That's the Christian celebration and, and memory of that day. Back then it was a very, very different day. Everyone who was a faithful Jewish person knew it in a very different way. They knew it as Lamb Selection Day. It was the day that every family or every household that had the money that could afford to buy a perfect, unblemished lamb would select that lamb as the one that they would use for the sacrifice later in the week for Passover. We call it Palm Sunday. They understood it as Lamb Selection Day. You understand why this might have caused a bit of a problem. This perfect Lamb of God chose to ride into town, not, not on a horse, not even on a donkey, but on the foal of a donkey. There was a tremendous message of peace that went with that. An unblemished animal. And as Jesus rode into town, both the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the people who regularly went to church saw the same thing, and that's the fulfillment of prophecy before their eyes. This perfect Lamb of God was chosen By God that day, the people, unknown to them, chose the perfect Lamb of God on Lamb Selection Day. Not as their king. That's what we're celebrating in Palm Sunday. But as the one who would be sacrificed for their sins. See, that's what the nation of Israel, that's what the Jewish people were doing. Lamb Selection Day was the day that they chose the lamb that would be sacrificed as an atonement for their sins. Jesus chose to ride into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. They didn't understand it, but they were choosing the perfect Lamb of God. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to start in Luke chapter 19, the 29th verse. Uh, When he drew near to Bethany and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, that's their word for a mountain, but it's not a mountain. It's a a very weathered hill. I've got a picture from uh, this past year when we were there. This is looking at Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. So behind you is Bethany. Pagean and Bethany, two small villages that get a lot of discussion when it comes to Jesus. He spent a lot of time there. And so we're really looking somewhere near the Garden of Gethsemane, Mount of Olives below. Down underneath that is the Kidron Valley that we read about. And then there's the wall that goes around the old city of Jerusalem. And you see the Golden Dome. That's the Dome of the Rock. That is Temple Mount for the people in Israel back in Jesus' day, that is now the area that another religion has claimed and has had for uh, all of the time since the late 7th century. The view of Jesus would have been similar without the high-rise buildings behind and without that golden dome. As he rode into Jerusalem, that is similar to what he would have seen. Things have changed, but they haven't changed all that much. In Jesus' day, there was no temple. It was the Temple Mount. It was the place that this whole parade was really supposed to be headed. 
And so he's outside of town. He's over that hill on the other side. And it says that he sent two of his disciples and he told them, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. It's important that it was an animal that had never been used for work. It was, if you will, the perfect colt. See, it isn't that often that we hear people, uh, Jesus tell people what to do. He would tell them not to sin. He would tell them to do something as a, as a part of their healing. But he didn't often tell them what they had to do. And as he's talking to his disciples, it's almost like his tone changed a little bit. It's almost like he took on a little bit more of, of the voice and the intention of a king. Go and do this. Goes on in verse 31. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. It would be kind of odd for some strange men to walk up to someone else's property and just untie it and walk away as though it was their own. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And that's all that's said about the matter. The Bible doesn't say anything else. It doesn't say another question was asked. Not that a complaint was raised, not that there was any confusion or discussion. The disciples were just simply allowed to take that colt because the Lord had need of it. Verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. That seems like an impractical thing that you would take off your cloak and that you'd either lay it on this colt on this foal or that you'd lay it on the ground what sense does that make well what it is it's a sign of respect for a visiting king it's a sign of respect of someone's authority it was the idea of making the way a little bit more cushioned and easier for their animal the cloaks on the animal itself would have made a a makeshift saddle and so jesus begins to ride into town if you look at this next picture now this is kind of the route that he would have taken. So that domed building in the front, that one you have to kind of ignore. That's um, part of the way down the route. But if you start in the upper right part of it, that's the old road, and it kind of zigzagged down into the valley, and then he would have rode in, ridden into the eastern gate of the city. So if you take the modern structures out of the way, that's kind of the way it looked in Jesus' day. One of the amazing things about being in the Holy Land is there are so many parts of it that are all the way dated back to Jesus' time, all the way up to things that went up last year. But we get this understanding then, as we look out at this, that this is what Jesus was walking through. This picture was taken uh, on top of Temple Mount, so the Dome of the Rock is just behind me as I took it, looking down over the valley up the hill. Uh, the first time I visited, I really wanted to get that picture, but we don't get to go on top of Temple Mount, and we were told this year we had an opportunity to do that. And I wanted that photo because in a moment like this, say, this is where Jesus went. This is where he rode that donkey. It's a great view of the path, and even though the, the gate on the other picture is gone, it's well below the uh, current ground, there's a new gate there now. But we get to see that this isn't just a story that we're reading. This is the testimony of Jesus' life. The places still exist. You can go, you can walk, you, you can see them yourself. They're there, they're real. This isn't a fairy tale. This is a telling of real history. It's a fact. And so these disciples, they did exactly what was instructed. They, they serve as a good example for all of us who are called to be disciples of Jesus, even if something doesn't make sense, even if it seems like that's a little bit out of order and why would someone do that? When God calls us and we're obedient, it's amazing how the pieces just fall into place. And that's what happened for these guys. 
And then something began to happen. The disciples who were with him, who had spent the last three years with them, and the larger group of disciples, people who followed Jesus as their leader, as their teacher, they began to realize that something was happening that struck a memory in their minds. There was prophecies in the Old Testament that they'd been living and waiting for before their eyes were beginning to unfold. They knew about him riding into Jerusalem. They knew the direction because their scriptures told them that he would come from. All the way down to what it was that he would ride and what would be the response of the people. And these people that knew those scriptures that came from their Bible, they knew that they were witnessing the words of their own prophets coming to life before their eyes. Verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, that's a whole gathered people, not just the twelve, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. See, most of this crowd was pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for Passover. They didn't live there. They were visiting. And they came in from all over the Holy Land. And if they knew their Old Testament, what we understand is the Old Testament, they knew their scriptures. They knew that there was something very special that was happening. And especially these folks who were from Galilee, where Jesus had been born and had grown up. They had been around an awful lot of his ministry. They had, they had watched him as he interacted lovingly with people. They had watched him as, as healings and miracles occurred. What they were doing really was giving a testimony to the power of God at work through Jesus. They were giving an eyewitness testimony because they had seen him at work. They had seen the miracles. They had seen what he had done and how he had treated people. And they realized that everything lined up. All of their scriptures lined up. Today was the day. Today was the day that the Messiah rode into Jerusalem. And so they said, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were actually quoting from Psalm 118 from their own scriptures. Psalm 18, starting in verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What did they say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And that's where the trouble started. The house of the Lord was the temple. And it was led by religious people who were very concerned about order. They were concerned about their authority. They were concerned about their power. See, their own scripture is what they were using to validate the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. Things that have been prophesied from years, years earlier. Zechariah 9.9 said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, which is what they were doing, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's where they were on their way to. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Hundreds of years ago, that promise had been made. Today, it was happening before their eyes. Of course, it was the church people, the Pharisees, the ones that had something to lose that were going to reign on this parade. They were the ones, and we still have the hyper-religious people in our world today. They're still in the church. They're the ones that are far more concerned about the faults and the sins of others than about seeing what it is that God might be doing that's new and different and fresh among us. They're the ones that want to make sure that nothing changes because they like the things just the way they are. They had a problem because Scripture was coming to life and they knew that God was at work. They were more concerned about religious law than about a relationship with Jesus. So they'd kept him at arm's length throughout the three years of his ministry. And now that he was here, now that he was coming into town, they realized 
that their power and their authority and their place and their position were at stake. And they couldn't just let it happen. They couldn't just just let things go the way that they were going. They needed to do something to get in the way. And so in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They attacked Jesus. They, They couldn't let this crowd continue to go on, but they knew that they couldn't be quiet because what would be happening is they would be contradicting the very scriptures that they had taught these people. And they were seeing it with their own eyes, and they knew that it was happening right in front of them. And so the Pharisees said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus was doing something out of character because he needed to do something quite unusual. What he was doing was giving everyone an opportunity to respond to him as the king of the Jews. He was giving everyone, including the ultra-religious Pharisees, the opportunity to respond to him as who he really was. That's why he... He took this very prominent, very public role riding in on this foal so that everyone knew who he was and what he was there for. No one can now say, I didn't have a chance to respond to you, Jesus. I didn't know. No no one ever told me. Today, Jesus announced to all of Jerusalem who he was. But he didn't have to say a word himself. His disciples in the crowd did it for him because he was the fulfillment of their own scriptures. See, the disciples were responding. They were responding in a way that was excited and was celebrating Jesus. But the Pharisees were also responding. The ultra-religious people more concerned about sins and rules were responding, and they were responding by rejecting him. See, the King Jesus, the, the king that showed up that day, he wasn't there to give them what they wanted. They wanted something very different. He he didn't come to save them from the Romans. If he had, he would have come riding in on a war stallion. That was the message that was given. The fact that he rode in on a donkey, much less the foal of a donkey, announced to everyone, and this is the way that kings arrived, when you arrive to bring in an era of peace, you arrive on a donkey. When you come in with military might and an army in tow, you you arrive on on a war stallion. Jesus went one step further and arrived on the foal of a donkey. That was the degree of the peace that he brought with him. And so they were responding by rejecting him. He came not to save them from the Romans. He came to save them from themselves. He came to save us from ourselves. He came to save them from their sin. He came to save us from our sin. The disciples were excited. They were celebrating. But the Pharisees, they rejected him because they were the ones that said, we don't need to be saved from our sin. We don't need you, Jesus. Even today, Jesus is the Savior that we need. He's the King that we need, but He isn't the King that we all want. See, even today, we want to be forgiven without repentance, and we want blessing without obedience. We want God's very best without offering anything in return. We don't want to have to suffer or sacrifice or do anything that's uncomfortable. The Pharisees didn't want to believe that Jesus could be real, even though something in them certainly knew that He was. Because it was going to be uncomfortable. It was going to bring in an era of change. And so they were furious. They they were furious that Jesus was accepting these accolades, that he was accepting these cheers, that he was was welcoming without stopping it, this celebratory parade for him. And they were angry because this homeless man from Galilee, they were not going to allow to be the long-awaited Messiah, the king that they were waiting for, the one that would restore them to prominence, the one that would kick the Romans out. He was a homeless man from Galilee. Who did he think he was? How dare he? 
And so the Pharisees say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And then Jesus says the most significant thing of all. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't get into an argument or a discussion. He simply responds with truth. And his truth is the ultimate statement of his kingship and divinity. He says this, Jesus answered, I tell you, if these, meaning the disciples in the crowd, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That was a statement the Pharisees couldn't have any response to. If the disciples were silenced, then all of creation, even the stones on the ground, would cry out in praise of Jesus. They would cry out in worship. That's why we call this time that we come together on Sunday morning worship. It's a time that we cry out to Jesus. It's a time that we recognize Him as our King, as our Savior, as the one who does for us what we can't do for ourselves. But the Pharisees rejected Him. It's our time on Sunday morning not to reject Him, but to accept Him and to cry out with all of creation. But then it's extremely important to understand what happens next. Because in a normal parade, Jesus would have ridden into town. He would have gone through that eastern gate or the garden gate or the garden of grace, they called it. And he was ridden to the temple and he would have taken his place on the throne. But that's not what happened. This parade got a little bit derailed before that occurred. And we pick it up in the very next verse in Luke 19, verse 41. We read about what Jesus does next as he's overlooking Jerusalem. He's on his way back out of town. He's on that hill I just showed you a picture of that gives you a great view of the city. Verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's the visitation? It's the day that Jesus arrived as the Savior of all who would put their faith and hope and trust in him and ride into Jerusalem. The visitation was of the king. And so what Jesus does is he weeps and he proclaims another prophecy. In a prophecy, the church has gotten this wrong more often than it's gotten right. A prophecy isn't a prediction. In the last year, you heard a lot of preachers out with bold prophecies about the election. And when they didn't come true, they apologized and say, I didn't get it wrong. Folks, that wasn't a prophecy and they weren't a prophet. A prophecy is a promise from God that either has been fulfilled or has yet to be fulfilled. And they're never wrong. A prophecy that comes from God is always 100% right, or else the person who spoke it wasn't a a prophet, and the prophecy didn't come from God. And so Jesus speaks a prophecy. He speaks a promise that has yet to be fulfilled. And what happened was, he died about 30 A.D. In 70 A.D., the Romans completely obliterated the Jewish temple and Temple Mount. They completely knocked stone from stone and left it for rubble. And it sat that way for a lot of years, and in the late 7th century, another faith, another religion came in and and brought in an army and defeated and, and took control of that land, and to this day, they occupy that corner of the city. When he says, a great multitude, uh, excuse me, when he says, the days will come upon you and enemies will set up a barricade around you, that's the wall that we see that's over the old wall that that isn't there anymore. And so that's the promise, that's the prophecy. It came true 40 years later, so the question for us is this then. As we celebrate Palm Sunday, realizing that what we're really celebrating is the Jewish holiday of Lamb Selection Day, 
What will you do? Do you recognize and acknowledge and accept King Jesus today? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? It's so easy to say, Jesus, thank you for being my Savior. I appreciate you forgiving my sins. But then we hold on to the part where he is our Lord because we like to make the decisions ourselves. We like to hold on to what we want to hold on to. We want what we want. We want it our way and we want it now. But if Jesus is our Lord, we give our lives to him. We submit our lives to him. And so who is he to you? Is he a footnote in history? Is he probably a living guy, but you don't believe he was the Son of God? Or do you believe that he is the living Son of God, your Lord and Savior? See, now you know. Now you've heard. Now we've talked about what that Lamb Selection Day, that first Palm Sunday, really was. The day that Jesus, our King and Savior, entered Jerusalem and was rejected. So so what will you do? Will, Will you celebrate him? Will you acknowledge and accept him as your savior, your king? Or will you reject him? That's really the decision we've got to make today because this week that comes ahead of us, it becomes very important. Because on Good Friday, we celebrate the day that Jesus gave his life for the sins of anyone who would believe in him. But if he's not your savior, that doesn't matter to you. And then on Sunday morning, God raised him to new life. He raised him from the grave that our sins could be forgiven and the power of death would be defeated. And for someone who believes in Jesus, that makes all the difference in the world. There's people who argue, and I've had these conversations more than once. A loving God wouldn't send anybody to hell. And my answer is, I agree, you're right. You choose it. God allows us to go to the place of our choosing in this life. All those people, Jesus wept because they rejected him and they chose a different eternal destination. Jesus came and gave his life and was raised from the grave that we might choose eternity with him. And when it comes to that time and God, we stand before God and and we stand in judgment. God doesn't make the decision in that moment where we go. We make the decision in this life where we choose to go. Either we choose to accept Jesus for who he is, or we reject him because we want to serve ourselves. But before we go, there's there's one more prophecy we have to look at. It's a promise from the last book of Bible. The Bible, it's all the way in the book of Revelation. It's being recorded by John. This is a promise that's yet to be fulfilled. And I bring it up because it's awfully appropriate for this Palm Sunday. Revelation 7, 9. John says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, even greater than the group that that surrounded Jesus that was in Jerusalem that day 2000 years ago, all standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. One day there'll be another palm celebration. It won't be a Palm Sunday, but it'll be a great gathering in heaven. It'll be a celebration of palms when Jesus, our Savior, the King of the Jews, the King of all kings, is on his throne and the great crowd is there to celebrate. Celebrate the perfect Lamb of God who was chosen that first Palm Sunday, Lamb Selection Day 2,000 years ago. So will you be there? Will you be there to worship your Savior? It's Palm Sunday. It's Lamb Selection Day. What will you choose? The choice that you make in this life is the choice that you will live with for all eternity. It's an important one. Choose it carefully. Will you choose Jesus to be your Savior and King? It's important because Holy Week is a week of belief and betrayal. It's a week where we get to choose to believe that Jesus is who he is, but it's also a week that Jesus was betrayed by his closest friend. 
Who will you choose? What will you believe? Where will you put your hope? See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and willingly gave his life for the sins of anybody who would believe in him, for the salvation of our souls, even before we believed, even while we were still sinners, the Bible says. And for many people, that great gift of love was rejected. Today, it continues to be rejected. People continue to hear the truth and decide that they're smarter or wiser or stronger than to believe it. 2,000 years later, we've got a chance to accept his gift and to choose him. Not just today, but every single day. And so on this Palm Sunday, this Lamb Selection Day, who will you choose? Who will you be? God's perfect Lamb, His Son, Jesus Christ, came to give His life for you and for I. But what will you believe? Who will you choose? Let's pray. God, thank You for today. Thank You for that first Palm Sunday. Thank You for the the time that Jesus did what probably wasn't comfortable for Him because He was such a humble man. He preferred personal relationships, one-on-one and in small groups with people. He wasn't one that lived for the limelight or celebrations, certainly not for parades. But as he did with the rest of that week, he acted in obedience to you. And so he sat on that foal and he rode into town amidst the celebration and all kinds of noise and shouts and hatred and rejection. And God, here we are 2,000 years later, and we have a choice to make. Once again, it's Lamb Selection Day. Do we choose the perfect Lamb of God, your Son, who gave his life for our sins, who was a sacrifice for our sins, who you raised from the grave that he might have a new life and that we might have a new life in him? And just like 2,000 years ago, the choice is ours. God, in the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to choose wisely. In Jesus' name, amen. Finally, this turn that we make is an interesting one because the big celebration of today, it doesn't just change for us, it changed dramatically for Jesus. There's this great celebration that was followed by tears overlooking the city he loved so much. He spent time that week all alone. He spent time trying to get the last bit of who he was and what he was out out to his disciples to bring about some understanding in their minds. Then there was the Last Supper where we get Holy Communion, where he said, do this to remember me. And then right after that, he was betrayed by a kiss by one of his very closest friends, one of the people who knew him as well as anyone who had been with him for three years. There's that belief and there's the betrayal. There's the trials. There's the the time in jail. There's the flogging. There was that long walk to the place where he was hung on the cross, where he was crucified and he died for our sins. And then next Sunday, we celebrate his resurrection that our sins can be forgiven and we can enjoy new life just like he does. This is, this is an emotional week. I, I've often said I wish that we could get together for a little while every day and talk about what was going on in Jesus' life. I'll leave that to you. All four Gospels talk about what happens from this day to the crucifixion and beyond. I would encourage you as you leave here this week, go and find that. Open them up and read them. Understand what's going on. Understand what Jesus was living through. The one thing that we know that we can take from all of it is how much God loves us. That nothing in the world can separate from God's great love for you.